Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. It was February 23rd of last year. Russia was on the brink of invading Ukraine. The midterms were just beginning to kick into high gear. And this story broke in The New York Times. Two prosecutors leading New York Trump inquiry resign, clouding cases future. Two prosecutors in the Manhattan DA's office quit out of frustration that the newly elected district attorney, Alvin Bragg, was reportedly not being aggressive enough in prosecuting Donald Trump. Okay, yes, so that story now feels like it came from an alternate universe. Manhattan DA Bragg is now the first prosecutor to bring charges against a former president over an alleged hush money scheme around the 2016 election. So this picture of Alvin Bragg as a timid prosecutor afraid to take on Donald Trump, well, that picture doesn't really seem to fit the bill anymore. For weeks, Alvin Bragg has been the subject of an onslaught of attacks from Republicans, all of them eager to defend Trump. Those Republicans have used veiled anti-Semitism, and they have used racist dog whistles, and they have used Congress. Three weeks ago, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, he launched an unprecedented investigation into Bragg's office and the DA's criminal probe of Donald Trump. Now, throughout all of this, Alvin Bragg has consistently fired back at his Republican critics. But today, Alvin Bragg took things up a notch. In a lawsuit filed in federal court today, D.A. Bragg sued Congressman Jordan for interfering with Bragg's criminal case against Trump. Bragg's lawyers write in the filing that Congressman Jordan's investigation constitutes a, quote, unprecedentedly brazen and unconstitutional attack by members of Congress. They continue, rather than allowing the criminal process to proceed in the ordinary course— Chairman Jordan and the committee are participating in a campaign of intimidation, retaliation, and obstruction. Bragg's attorneys detail a campaign of constant harassment by Trump and his Republican allies. The tweets and the Truth Social posts and the Fox News interviews. They cite a Trump Truth Social post calling Bragg a Soros-backed animal in a post where Trump shared a doctored image of Trump holding a baseball bat next to Alvin Bragg's face. So it really has been a lot. And then Bragg and his lawyers write about what an absolute constitutional disaster it is to have Congress meddling with the state investigation in terms of separation of powers. There are numerous legal citations in this complaint, like this one. Federal intrusions into state criminal trials frustrate both the state's sovereign power to punish offenders and their good faith attempts to honor constitutional rights. So there is a lot in this 50-page document, this complaint from Alvin Bragg, for the judge to chew on. But the most interesting part of the case brought by Alvin Bragg today is what it tells us about the real motive behind Jim Jordan's investigation. Bragg's lawsuit suggests that the reason Chairman Jordan is doing all of this isn't just to undermine that Manhattan DA or test the bounds of the Constitution, but to get a good look at the evidence against Donald Trump in order to feed that evidence, that information, back to Donald Trump. 
Bragg accuses Jordan of attempting to seek confidential investigative material from Bragg's investigation. According to the lawsuit, Congressman Jordan has requested all documents and communications between or among the New York County DA's office and the U.S. Department of Justice or other federal law enforcement agencies referring or relating to your office's investigation of President Donald Trump which seems designed to sweep up as much information about the case against Donald Trump as possible. And remember those two prosecutors who resigned in protest from Bragg's office last year? Their names were Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn. They had been working on an earlier, broader investigation into, Trump's, un, into Trump under Bragg's predecessor, former Manhattan DA Cy Vance. And like I said, their reason for quitting was that Alvin Bragg wasn't allegedly being aggressive enough in bringing that larger fraud case against Donald Trump. Which means that Dunn and Pomerantz probably know a lot about the evidence the state has amassed against Donald Trump. And Jim Jordan seems fairly obsessed with getting documents from Dunn and Pomerantz. Last week, Mr. Jordan subpoenaed Mr. Pomerantz to come and testify before his committee about the investigation. Jordan has also asked D.A. Bragg to turn over all documents and communications sent or received by former employees Carrie Dunn and Mark Pomerantz referring or relating to President Donald Trump. Again, that is probably a whole lot of important and really relevant stuff, especially if you're Donald Trump. Bragg's lawsuit also notes that Jordan is also seeking testimony from lawyers currently inside the Manhattan DA's office, lawyers who presumably have up-to-date information on the case against Donald Trump, lawyers who stepped in when Dunn and Pomerantz stepped out. So yes, this is a House investigation, but who is really calling the shots here? Whose interest is actually at the heart of all this? The DA would seem to have some ideas on that front. The lawsuit cites reporting from CNN that shows Trump is in constant contact with certain members of Congress. Congressman Jordan himself speaks regularly with the former president. And then it quotes Alvin Bragg saying this about Jim Jordan and two of his fellow Republican House chairmen. Based on the chairman's reportedly close collaboration with Mr. Trump in attacking this office and the grand jury process, it appears the chairman are acting more like a criminal defense counsel trying to gather evidence for a client than a legislative body seeking to achieve a legitimate legislative objective. Joining us now is Harry Sandick, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Harry, thanks for joining me. And um, I am eager to get your thoughts on this because there is a lot that is wrong, apparently, with oh, yes. the Jordan investigation. <laughs> but just first off, I mean, do you what what are the implications here? And do you see a potential link between the conversations that are clearly happening between House Republicans and Donald Trump and the documents they are calling for as part of this alleged investigation? A absolutely. The requests that you read for information from Jordan and his committee are designed to get the prosecution's case file, things that might be in some cases owed to the president in discovery and in other cases not owed in discovery. They want all of it. And then they can do pretty much whatever they want to do with it. Uh, and they don't seem terribly interested in negotiating with Alvin Bragg about some narrower set of materials. This does seem to be the real purpose here is to help the president's defense. And that's, of course, not a permissible purpose. <laughs> yeah, well, that's not what Congress is supposed to be doing. Nope. The, the, the zeroing in on Kerry Dunn and Mark Pomerantz, what does that tell you about their interest in Cy Vance's <laughs> investigation and the degree to which that very much may be a live issue inside the DA's office? Yeah, I think they know. Well, for one thing, Pomerantz wrote the book. 
And so it would be very hard for him to kind of categorically refuse to answer questions. He can't say as easily as the district attorney can that, you know, I can't talk about any of this because he just wrote a book about it. Mm -hmm. And he may well also have indicated, and this is just speculation from the fact that Bragg did not wait for the subpoena to be enforced, but instead affirmatively is trying to quash the subpoena, that perhaps he knows that Pomerantz will show up for his deposition or interview And therefore, he's trying to get the court to prevent that from happening. How much I mean, you you make mention of the book, which was not with the approval of the DA's office. It's clear that Alvin Bragg is not happy about the publication of that book. But if you're Trump and you're looking to amass your you're looking to gather your defense for a possible second criminal indictment, maybe or the one that's already on the table. How much can he get from Mark Pomerantz that pertain? I mean, how much can he get from Pomerantz that's not actually in the book? If Pomerantz is going to be forced to testify or is willing to testify, the answer is a lot because he was the person, along with Carrie Dunn, who was running this investigation for at least a year. Uh, although it was much broader than the charges that were brought, it encompassed those charges as well. And so he no doubt knows a tremendous amount of information about. Uh, the district attorney's concerns about the case, their assessment, the strengths and weaknesses, the internal deliberative process about whether to bring the case or not. So they clearly want him to testify. And this lawsuit seems designed to prevent that. They're also asking for communications between the DA's office and the DOJ as it pertains to Donald Trump. Now, Presumably, that's because they're saying this House investigation has to deal with congressional oversight into the use of federal funds. And we want to see what the DOJ is saying to the DA's office. But what could they glean from those communications beyond whether or not federal dollars were used correctly? Well, we know that the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District did not pursue these charges. And we don't entirely know why. It could be that they had concerns about the state of the evidence. It could be that Michael Cohen was not willing to go along with the Southern District's program of admitting to all of his prior wrongdoing, which is part of what the Southern District requires of cooperators. So they are hoping that maybe there is something in those communications that would help uh, uh, Trump. Trump, not evidence, but the assessment of the evidence, because, of course, exculpatory evidence uh, Donald Trump should get. That's the, the Constitution, but not the internal chatter by the prosecutors. Speaking of the Constitution, I mean, there's so we know what Trump wants. We know what the House Republicans want, presumably on Trump's behalf. What the D.A. wants is for this all to go away. And on its face, this seems like a violation of the separation of powers, doesn't I am not a lawyer, but there seems to be so much good evidence in the D.A.'s favor as far as how this basically this investigation cannot and should not continue. How do you read it? Yeah, no, in terms of the, the core question of is there a valid legislative purpose? We certainly haven't seen anything from Jordan that explains what that valid legislative purpose is. You mentioned the idea that there's some connection to federal funds. And while there doesn't need to be much of a valid legislative purpose, the courts have been pretty deferential to Congress. There needs to be something. And we haven't really seen that something yet. There's some procedural hurdles that I think the district attorney will have to encounter. Uh, sovereign immunity claims. Uh, there's a clause in the Constitution called the Speech and Debate Clause. Oh, which, we're familiar with uh, that on this show. <laughs> but you go ahead. No, it it gives Congress considerable authority here, but that authority is not unlimited. And so like so many times we've seen in the Trump era, we're going to make some precedent here because this is not a frequently litigated thing. Mostly 
the person waits until the subpoena is enforced. Then, of course, we saw that over and over again in the in the Trump administration. Yes, we sure did. But I, I mean, you say we don't know what this investigation is for on the part of House Republicans. I mean, I have my theories, right? We know. They've also been pretty explicit, right? They're, I mean, th- and this is cited in D.A. Bragg's complaint. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy tweeting, the House of Representatives will hold Alvin Bragg and his unprecedented, uh, unprecedented abuse of power to account. <laughs> Republican Congressman Dan Bishop, who's now on the House Judiciary Committee, tweets, the, sh- the, subpoenas, the subpoenas should now fly. And Indeed, they have. House Oversight James K- Chair James Comer in an interview with DNA and N saying that Bragg should, quote, come explain to us exactly what he's investigating. Does that matter? I mean, do those tweets, do those explicit statements that we're going to come get you, Alvin Bragg? <laughs> I mean, does that matter in the context of the judge who is going to be handling this complaint from the DA? I think they will matter to the judge because they will show that whatever is advanced, first of all, it's going to have to be more than this for uh Jordan to go forward with this. But he will be allowed, Jordan, to come up with completely new rationales that are nowhere cited in his prior statements. And the way courts often look at this is they let the legislator essentially have a do-over. So I do think that these statements will discredit whatever they come up with. And to be sure, if all they can come up with is what you've just read, that isn't enough. But it, it, it won't be essentially up to the subjective uh, statements by Jordan. The lawyers can now come in and offer some completely new, uh, superficial, pretextual explanation for what they're doing. And that'll be the clash in court. I mean, I, I have to say, when you look at this from a, the long lens of what this establishes in terms of the you know, partisan politics, the the weaponization of committees and weaponization of subpoena power on Congress, right? These are some of the House Republicans that are issuing these subpoenas that are meddling in all this are the same House Republicans who defied subpoenas from their congressional counterparts in the January 6th investigation. Yep. And like, what precedent does that set as far as, you know, how Congress functions when you have taken something like the subpoena and used it for such explicitly partisan goals in this instance. Well, you know, what is it? The eighth circle of hell was hypocrisy. And this is certainly within that definition of hypocrisy for people to oppose obviously legitimate congressional investigations, such as January 6th, where there's a clear legislative purpose. And then to come forward with this kind of stuff, uh, it, it's very weak. And as you say, it poses real separation of powers issues. If any district attorney can be forced to turn over their case file, essentially to the defendant, uh, it, it changes dramatically the structure that the framers created. Oh, and what are the implications for, for example, Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County DA who is in the middle of her own investigation? There may be charging decisions next month. Uh, can Congress do the same thing to her? They, they certainly will if they're able to get away with it here and potentially with the DOJ investigation. And there, there may be even an easier legislative purpose argument to make, uh, congressional oversight of the Department of Justice. But it's totally unprecedented to go into an active investigation for all the reasons that you discussed. Grand jury material, uh, confidential prosecutor files should not be disclosed to Congress to help the defendant. And this from the party that wants smaller government, less intrusive government, not meddling with states' affairs. That's right. And and pro-law enforcement, of course. Well, yes, we won't <laughs> get into that eighth level, eighth, eighth circle of hell hypocrisy. Harry Sandick, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Thanks for making time tonight, Harry. Thank you. Great to see you. We have a lot more to get to this evening as authorities in Louisville, Kentucky, confirmed that the shooter who killed five at a bank yesterday used a very familiar weapon. Plus how the Biden administration's actions last year to overcome a shortage of baby formula 
may inform what happens this year in the fight over medication abortion. That's coming up. Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life, too, because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Repatha.com or call 1-844-REPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Repatha. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Remember when there was a huge shortage of baby formula in this country? It went on for months, and it was really pretty scary. By May of 2022, more than 40% of U.S. baby formula supplies were out of stock. Some stores were limiting customers to three baby formula products per purchase. Parents were getting stressed, and they were worried, and they were struggling with hungry babies. Now, Republicans professed outrage— But they loved the politics of this. They hammered the Biden administration on it. They called the White House incompetent, saying Joe Biden simply has no plan. House Republicans staged press conferences to slam Biden and slam the FDA, a lot of them featuring those images of empty shelves where baby formula was supposed to be. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik declared this administration should be looking at everything and anything to fix the shortage. So when House Democrats proposed a $28 million funding bill, to give give the FDA some money to help solve the problem, 192 Republicans voted against it. They were so incensed over these shortages that they voted against something that might help end them. Got that? The Republicans who voted no called that FDA funding unnecessary. But the FDA got creative. While Republicans were busy voting against its funding, the FDA was using its authority to allow non-FDA-approved infant formula that met its safety guidelines to enter the U.S. market. And that meant for months, parents in the states were able to purchase formula from other countries, thanks in large part to this specific authority that the FDA used. The FDA increased options for formula, which strengthened the supply chain, which helped babies get their food. Now, Congress has given the FDA pretty broad authority to regulate food and health products, including allowing the use of unapproved products on a case-by-case basis. And legal experts say the FDA can now also use that broad authority for mifepristone, the first of two drugs typically used in medication abortions. Since a federal judge in Texas ruled on Friday that the FDA's 23-year-old approval of mifepristone is effectively on hold and may be ultimately rescinded, access to mifepristone has been up in the air. 
depending on how this case plays out in the courts, the FDA might have to uh, use its authority to allow a non-approved FDA, a non-FDA approved drug on the market, much like it did during that really important baby formula shortage. And that would allow the newly unapproved drug, mifepristone, to remain on the U.S. market. And it would ensure that the drug stays available for purchase and distribution for anyone who needs it in states where abortion is legal, just like with the baby formula shortage, even if conservatives don't like this solution. Again, just like the baby formula shortage. But first, before any of that happens, the FDA and the Biden administration are relying on the courts. Last night, the Justice Department asked the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to block the Texas judge's ruling and maintain FDA approval of the drug. Tonight, we expect to see the anti-abortion groups that are leading the charge against mifepristone. We expect them to respond to that request. And as soon as tomorrow, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals could weigh in. Joining us now is Melissa Murray, professor at New York University School of Law, co-host of the legal podcast Strict Scrutiny, and of course, an MSNBC legal analyst. Melissa, thanks for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me, Alex. So, what is your, I mean, the Fifth Circuit is a fairly conservative uh, court of appeals. That's a very generous way <laughs> yeah. to put it, Alex. Arch conservative. I think six of the 26 Fifth Circuit judges were appointed by Trump. M- many others were appointed, appointed by Reagan and George W. Bush. I mean, is it a uh, foregone conclusion that they keep Mifepristone off the market? I mean, how do you see this maybe playing out? Well, it could be the case that this ruling from Judge Matthew Kaczmarek is so lawless, so unprincipled, and frankly, so not smart that even the Fifth Circuit can't hold its nose and affirm it. So that's one option. They could simply say this ruling is completely unprincipled and they could invalidate it. They could also uphold the ruling. They could also do nothing, right? Um, They could pause the ruling while the appeal is pending. But either way, whatever the outcome, I think we know where this goes next. And that's to the United States Supreme Supreme Court. Court. So the Fifth Circuit's just an intermediary way station on the way. And the real question here is the landscape of chaos and confusion we've heard from around the country, doctors who don't know what's possible, whether they can prescribe medication abortion. We have heard about states stockpiling mifepristone, stockpiling mesoprostol. I mean, this seems sort of like a Soviet breadline for abortion care. No, I think for a woman who or anyone who is in need of, uh, you know, wants reproductive choice and control their own body, this is a terrifying moment. Um, When you talk about the blue states that are uh, stockpiling mifepristone, do you think, I mean, does that make it all better in a way? Or do you think that there's a concern? If you're a doctor, are you worried about litigation? Are you worried about the fact that this is not a resolved issue? Do you want to stay hands off when it comes to medication abortion? So I, I think there is a massive deterrent effect, a chilling effect, if you will, on physicians, just because the landscape is so chaotic right now. So it's the case that Gavin Newsom is stockpiling mifepristone and more Healy is stockpiling mifepristone. But if you're a physician and your licensing may depend on whether or not you stay good within the law and compliant within the law, you might not want to risk it. So there's a very strong deterrent effect here just because of the chaos in the landscape. And I love that you related all of this back to the baby shortage formula because there was a piece that you did not mention that I want to just highlight. When all of that was going on, there were a couple of rogue lawmakers who insisted that this baby shortage, this baby formula shortage was of no moment because women had the natural capacity as mothers to lactate and to provide breast milk to their children. And they should do that. All women should breastfeed. Breastfeed. Again, these things are inextricably intertwined. This isn't about mifepristone or the agency or whether or not the FDA approved this drug appropriately. It's about controlling women, forcing women into their quote-unquote natural role 
as wives and mothers. So it all links back up to this. To women's bodies. To women's bodies, controlling women, making them mothers, whether they want to be or not. But I will point out the the hypocrisy of forcing women to be mothers. And then when they have those babies, not doing everything in their power to make sure those babies are fed. Well, I, mean, I mean, it's a very weird pro-life ethic that you have there, um, you know, pro-life, but not necessarily for the whole life. Right. For some abstract part for the of the inuterine the, life. Yes, for the, inu- the uterine life. Yes. Um, when we talk about SCOTUS, how, this is more, I think well, a lot of about SCOTUS, do we talk about plutocrat SCOTUS or ordinarily, <laughs> or ordinary SCOTUS? Well, we're going to talk, <laughs> we are going to talk about the SCOTUS as it currently stands. I think a lot of people assume, oh, here's the layup they've been waiting for to outlaw all form of abortion, of, uh, forms of abortion everywhere. And yet there are some justices, Kavanaugh and Roberts among them, who seemed like they were a bit hesitant to strike down Roe. I'm not going to, obviously not hesitant enough to not abide it. But when it comes to this, the cascade effects of a ruling in favor of, of, of the anti-abortion groups that have, of the, the plaintiffs here on the drug industry, the FDA, the government's, you know, the FDA's ability to regulate any drug are, are catastrophic. Do you think that it's a foregone conclusion that the, okay. No, I think this is wide open before the court. Um, again, we have to remember the central conceit of Dobbs was that Roe and Casey rested an issue that should have been decided from the, for, by the people, from the people, and imposed a judicial resolution. And all that Dobbs was doing was merely returning this right. to the people for state-by-state state deliberation. If the court really wants to say that with a straight face and then a year later approve this decision where a single judge in a courthouse in Amarillo gets to decide for the whole country what happens vis-a-vis medication abortion, it reveals the lie of Dobbs. Like, I've already said what I think the lie of Dobbs is. And I think Dobbs is merely a way station on the road to fetal personhood and the complete and total abolition of abortion in this country. And this weekend, many various members of the pro-life coalition were like, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, they're explicit. They're explicit about it. But if you're the court and you're standing by this decision as a principled return to the democratic process of a vexed and fraught issue, you can't abide by this one judge in Amarillo, Texas doing this. So I think this is going to present a real challenge for Justice Kavanaugh, who wrote in his very pained concurrence that the Constitution is neutral on the question of abortion. It's neither pro-choice nor pro-life, and we've got to be neutral, too. Women have the right to make this choice, and they can do so at the state level. They can persuade their state legislatures. They can persuade Congress. And they have been. And they have been. (laughs) And they have been. So, again, is— SCOTUS a pro-democracy SCOTUS? Is it not interested in democracy? Is democracy unconstitutional at this point? Those are the broader questions that underlie this case as it goes up to the court. Just to be really um, particularly pessimist, pessimist, just to to put a gimlet eye on this, the fact that 250 pharmaceutical companies have weighed in when you talk about plutocrat SCOTUS— Big Pharma matters to plutocrats, and maybe they actually have some sway on this issue in terms of amicus briefs that will inevitably be filed if this goes to SCOTUS, right? Big Pharma has made their voices known throughout all of this. And and I think, again, it shows that this case goes beyond abortion and sort of touches on a lot of conservative bugaboos. Like, this is also about the administrative state and whether we can have regulation. And so this is not simply an assault on medication abortion. It's an assault on the FDA as an administrative agency. 
agency that acts under a democratically appointed mandate to do certain things. And this is a court that's been very skeptical of the administrative state in certain places. Um, So this presents a real conflict. Like you could mm, stick it to abortion, mm, stick it to the administrative state, but you could also be sticking it to the idea of the rule of law. And Mm. well, they're better. Sophie's choice. It is Sophie's choice. Which baby will you pick? Ay, ay, ay. Melissa Murray, thank you as always, my friend. It's great to see you and get some of your wisdom on this very fraught topic. We have still more to come this evening, including whether Republicans are starting to recognize that they are on the wrong side politically when it comes to abortion and to guns. Plus, why the gun used in yesterday's deadly attack in Louisville will end up back in circulation unless lawmakers act. That is just ahead. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Under current Kentucky law, the assault rifle that was used to murder five of our neighbors and shoot at rescuing police officers will one day be auctioned off. Think about that. That murder weapon will be back on the streets one day under Kentucky's current law. That was Louisville Mayor Craig Greenberg at a press conference this afternoon talking about the AR-15 assault rifle that the gunman in Louisville had legally purchased just a week ago, a weapon the gunman used yesterday to kill five people and wound eight more at a Louisville bank. The mayor's office is going to make sure that the firing pin is removed from that weapon before it's handed over to the state, which will make the weapon temporarily inoperable. But that is all the state law allows it to do. The gun has to be handed over to the state and it has to be auctioned off unless state legislators change the law, which means that another AR-15 will be back on the streets. Tonight, authorities in Louisville released body cam footage from yesterday's shooting that shows just how quickly the police were able to get to the scene and kill the shooter. There were three minutes between when the shooting started and when the police were called. There were then three more minutes between that call and when police got to the scene. And three minutes after that, the police had taken out the shooter. So it was an incredibly fast and brave response. But again, in just those nine minutes, the shooter had killed five people and wounded eight more. Now, there is surely going to be a lot of talk about this shooter's motive and mental state, but I think the mayor is right to be focused on the gun here, this type of gun in particular, which is the AR-15. If you remember just two weeks back, the shooter at the Nashville Covenant School also used an AR-15. 
They killed six people, three kids and three adults, in less than 15 minutes. The Club Q shooting that killed five people last year, also an AR-15. The Highland Park parade shooting last year on the 4th of July, that was an AR-15-style weapon. Uvalde, an AR-15. Buffalo, an AR-15. Of the 10 deadliest mass shootings since 2012, six of them used AR-15-style weapons. And even if they were not using the specific gun, all 10 of the deadliest mass shootings since 2012 used semi-automatic weapons with what are now known as large-capacity magazines. They're probably what you think of when you think of an AR-15, the giant curved part coming out of the bottom that holds the bullets. In the Vietnam War, U.S. soldiers used magazines with 20 bullets in the war. Today, the AR-15 and other semi-automatic weapons are regularly sold to civilians with at least 30 bullet magazines. You can buy magazines that hold 100 bullets for about 100 bucks. Now, when Congress passed the federal assault weapons ban in 1994, it also prohibited magazines with more than 10 rounds. But that law is no longer in place. Now, the mayor of Louisville is focusing on this one specific AR-15 and this one Kentucky law because that is a law he thinks he might be able to influence the state legislature to change. But nationally, it is just as obvious that we need to start regulating AR-15s and high-capacity magazines overall. And those should be political slam dunks. 63% of American adults favor banning assault-style weapons altogether. And 64% of American adults favor banning high-capacity magazines. So how are we still here? How have Republicans prevented any serious movement on gun control when common-sense gun control is so popular? And why are we still here? Why specifically are Republicans still here? Former Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill is going to join me live next to talk about that and a lot more. Last year, after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, Ann Coulter, the conservative pundit, told her followers not to worry. She assured them that overturning Roe wasn't going to help Democrats. Outside of the media, no one seems especially bothered by the decision or to have noticed it. Okay, Coulter's message seems to have resonated among Republicans. Rather than bracing for backlash, they pushed through even more radical anti-abortion measures all over the country. And then the midterms happened. And contrary to what Ann Coulter predicted, Republicans were swept. Democrats retained control of all of their state legislatures. They flipped Republican chambers in Michigan and Pennsylvania. They gained a Senate seat and they kept their House losses to the single digits. So you would think, perhaps, that Republicans might have learned a lesson. But no. Instead, they went back to the drawing board and adopted a resolution urging lawmakers all over the country to pass the strongest pro-life legislation possible. Many of them did. And the result of that, many argue, is this. A conservative candidate in an election for a seat on Wisconsin's Supreme Court losing last week by 11 points. The liberal who won the race focused her election squarely on abortion. And so now, Ann Coulter has another message. The demand for anti-abortion legislation just cost Republicans another crucial race. Pro-lifers, we won. Abortion isn't a constitutional right anymore. Please stop pushing strict limits on abortion or there will be no Republicans left. The question is, will Republicans listen? Today, Politico is reporting that inside the party's headquarters, there has been recognition that Republicans need to change their message on abortion, with pollsters arguing for a more moderate tack. 
This is not the only big issue Republicans may be reconsidering. They're also getting massive backlash for opposing gun gun safety measures, especially after Republicans in Tennessee last week expelled two black Democratic lawmakers from the state legislature for leading protests after a school shooting in Nashville left six people dead. Then yesterday came another mass shooting, this time in Louisville, Kentucky, killing five people and injuring eight. And while Republicans have chosen to remain silent... Today, Tennessee's Republican governor signed an executive order strengthening background checks for gun purchases. He also called on lawmakers to pass a so-called red flag law, which would remove guns from people who pose a danger to others or themselves. Joining us now is Claire McCaskill, former U.S. senator from Missouri and an MSNBC analyst. Claire, it is always good to see you. What an extraordinary series of events that have pushed abortion and gun safety to the very top of the national um, attention span, if you will, the, to the national media and certainly our collective American imaginations. Do you think that Governor Lee's behavior in Tennessee, that, that these moments could be inflection points for a Republican Party that has seemed so out of step with mainstream Americans on these two issues? Uh, I doubt it. Um, this is... Um, something that they have embraced in the base of their party. As you can see, the RNC put out something after the Dobbs decision saying, keep going, go as far as you can. Legislatures across the country, including in my state, have made every abortion illegal, including for victims of rape and incest. Um, from the moment of conception, there is no grace period whatsoever. In my legislature here in Missouri, the Republicans in block voted to let children openly carry guns. So they clearly have no, no filter on realizing that they're going too far. Um, and frankly, on both abortion and guns, their claims to want to protect children by banning books and making sure that there are no drag shows anywhere, those are as hollow as the hollow point bullets that they refuse to regulate. Protecting life is not their priority, and nor is protecting children. Um, I kind of hope that there will be some parents, some families that decide to allow the bodies of their dead children to be shown to America. So we can't brush it aside. Um, it's astounding to me how far they've gone, and it's astounding to me that they keep pushing with huge helpings of hypocrisy. Yeah. I mean, we know that. And then I would say that it could even get more. It could get worse for the GOP insofar as there, you know, in the wake of these two mass shootings, you have Governor Lee trying to do something about it. But you also this week also have the meeting of the NRA, I believe, annual leadership forum in Indiana, where Republicans are expected to attend and bend the knee to the National Rifle Association. You have, you know, one governor on one hand doing something to to increase gun safety, if you will. However, much around the margins it is, then you have Ron DeSantis in Florida allowing concealed weapons without a permit. Um, I guess on guns, the, the picture is very complicated. And on abortion, it's even muddier. I, but I do think the the Kasmeric ruling on Mifepristone uh, throws the party into such an extraordinary position, not just on the subject of abortion, but on the basic sort of principles of the government being able to regulate drugs, do you think there's any hope that Republicans will voice 
any doubt about whether this lawsuit should go through? Well, I will say this, the um, off the wall, la la decision by this. I mean, as a lawyer reading the opinion, it is jaw dropping when you read the opinion because he blows up some of the most conservative tenets of our rule of law in America, like standing, like timeliness, like exhaustion of administrative remedies. These are all very conservative principles that have been blown up in the political name of trying to limit abortions everywhere. And by the way, the hypocrisy there, I mean, remember after Dobbs, when all the Republicans said, well, we want the states to decide? No, they don't. No, they don't. This Texas decision is, in fact, a lawsuit really masquerading um, for a political desire to outlaw abortions everywhere. Uh, And I thought it was great that you spent some time on high capacity magazines. I do not understand how anyone's desire to shoot so many bullets in such a short period of time are necessary for their enjoyment of owning guns. I do not understand that. And I don't think most Americans do, especially when they are used to slaughter. Yeah. I mean, there, there is there, there, the, the reason you have high capacity magazines is for the battlefield. And that's, you know, why in the Vietnam War, soldiers had AR-15s that were uh, armed with 10 round magazines. The, I think the question is, if we set aside the Republican Party for a minute, there is there is the question of how Democrats handle this moment. Right. It is not good that we are having mass shootings in this country. It is not good that children are being slaughtered. Um, Democrats have to at once make Republicans pay a price for that, but they also need to do something to fix the problem. Um, what, what else can and should the Biden administration be doing broadly on the subject of gun safety reform? Well, the truth is, the way our government is designed, Alex, it's very hard for a president to do much with executive power uh, on issues like this, whether it be abortion or whether it be gun safety and gun reform. Uh, This really has to come from the people. It has to come from legislative bodies, both local, state, and federal legislative bodies. We have to decide we're not going to be the slaughter capital of the world. We have to decide that it's politically unacceptable to have your children hold AR-15s, weapons of war, for a Christmas card. We have to decide it's unacceptable to elect anyone who takes off an American flag of their lapel and proudly puts an AR-15 on instead. And that is up to the voters of this country to decide that they've had enough. And my hope is that what we saw in Wisconsin with young people is going to be replicated next year and in even elections this year, where young people who, by huge margins, are rejecting the extremism, whether it's book banning, whether it's no abortions for anyone, the government is going to force birth, whether it's climate change or whether it's guns, the younger generation gets it. And if they show up, uh, we will finally make real movement on getting rid of weapons of wars that are slaughtering children sitting innocently in school. Claire McCaskill, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you for your time and thoughts tonight, Claire. You bet. Thank you. We have one more story for you tonight, a story about book banning at public libraries that is so egregious you might assume it's happening in the state of Florida. But think again. That story's next. This is the first item on the agenda for a special meeting this week of the Llano County, Texas commissioners. 
a discussion about whether to continue or cease operations of the current physical Lanau County library system. Officials in Lanau County, Texas, which is a community of about 22,000 people and is about 80 miles outside the state capitol, they have been ordered by a federal judge to return about a dozen items that were removed from the county's library system after some citizens complained. Among them, books that cover race, LGBTQ matters, and puberty, including Cast, the Origins of of our discontents, Isabel Wilkerson's examination of racism in America, Being Jazz, My Life as a Transgender Teen by Jazz Jennings, a birth, a book about the birth of the Ku Klux Klan, along with a handful of kids' books about farting, because that's all kids, or at least my kids, are interested in. Seven residents of Lano County sued county officials to get those books back on the shelves, complaining that defendants claim to be on a hunt to eradicate pornographic materials. This is a pretext. None of the books defendants have targeted is pornographic. Now, the case goes to trial in October, but the federal judge ordered the books back on the shelf in the meantime. At a meeting of the county board of commissioners this week, members of the public reportedly applauded after one woman said, if they insist on having the books and if we don't win again, then just close down after which the board decided to hold an emergency meeting this Thursday where they may just vote to shut all the libraries down in Lano County. So there is a very real possibility that a fight about, of about over about a dozen books may cause an entire community to lose access to every book. That is the show for tonight. We'll see you then again tomorrow. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.